And so will you join me for a moment as we pray? Lord, thank you. Thank you for the wonderful privilege that it is to, to know you. Thank you for all that you have done for us. And Lord, as we look at our destiny, what our future holds, because of what you have done, Lord, I just ask that as I share these details, as I share these thoughts, as we look into the scriptures together for a brief moment this morning, that just like the loaves and the fishes, God, that you would take uh, what little that I can offer and that you would greatly multiply it, that you would use it exponentially, that your people might be encouraged and that your kingdom might be built up. And it is in the name of Jesus, my Lord and my substitute, that I pray. Amen. So we have had, I have had, the luxury of my dad building toward this topic throughout the entire time we've been in First Thessalonians. So I owe him a big, big thank you because he's done a lot of the heavy lifting and this is not a sharp left turn for us as, uh, as a congregation But today I would like to share with us about the hope of heaven. Specifically, what will heaven be like? What is heaven? And, well, I don't want to spoil the rest, so I'll just get to it. Before we dive in, though, Don Marquis, he's a journalist. that I love this particular quote. If you make people think that they're thinking, they will love you. But if you make them really think, they will hate you. So I just share that to say, please don't hate me. But my goal here this morning is to make us really think. My goal here this morning is maybe to even make your gray matter hurt just a little bit. Because I truly, truly believe that as Christians, especially American Christians, loving the Lord with all of our minds is an area that we fall woefully short in. And it is for this reason that I would like to help us maybe elevate our game as, as believers this morning a little bit. Now, should you hate me, or should I say something that is just grossly offensive to you this morning, or that you just never had thought of before, you have questions about, that's my email address right there. Please take it down, because uh, I'm happy to get questions from people and, and answer them uh, to the best of my ability as I, as I can and as I can find time. So, having said that, a uh, little bit of housekeeping. So who am I? Now, this may be weird to say, but I, I felt like it's appropriate to ask, like, why is the guy who's up here playing guitar most weeks, like, preaching, right? And I think that's a very good question. Why am I up here? So as a worship leader and, and musician, uh, it's not, I feel, my primary calling. In fact, Leading worship is something that has happened relatively recently in my Christian life. It's something that God had put, basically thrust me into when we started Oasis. Prior to that, my passion has been and continues to be uh, teaching and looking at theology and biblical studies and that kind of thing. So my background, for those of you who may not know, my undergrad is in biblical studies. And currently, actually this fall is my last semester Uh, in Biola's uh, Masters of Arts in Christian Apologetics program, which I have been very privileged to be a part of and to juggle amidst uh, working full-time and having a four-month-old now. Uh, But it has been amazing, and I have learned so much in the last 18 months. I still have more to learn this next semester, but my biggest challenge in being given the opportunity to speak to you all today was to decide how do I package all the good stuff that I've learned in 18 months into something for you in 45 minutes? And the answer is you don't. It's just not possible. So we had to look at, well, then what can I share? What is the big thing, the big rock, if you will, that that should be covered? And to me, that is the hope of heaven and the hope that we have, because I think if we get that right as Christians, so many other things, in fact, everything else will fall into place. If we get it wrong... I think we will struggle to get anything else really dialed in in our Christian lives. And so that's why we're talking about this. So speaking of apologetics, and I apologize if some of you can't see the bottom here. I will tell you what's there even if you can't see it. 
I would just like to say right up front, I'm not apologizing for anything. I feel the need to go in and just explain briefly where we get this term from and what it really means biblically. It comes from this verse in 1 Peter chapter 3, where Peter writes, But sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, but do so with gentleness and respect. The word, the first word we'd like to look at right now is this word here, defense. That word in the Greek is the word apologia. It is where we get the English term apologetics. And so really, apologetics is the defense of the Christian faith. In other words, I personally believe that there are very good reasons to be a Christian. And so apologetics takes the time to say, well, what are those reasons? And how can we use those to tell other people, hey, you know, by the way, there are really good reasons to be a Christian. You should be a Christian. Alternate ways of translating this word, though, are reason, vindication, or justification. So it's an attempt not to argue people into heaven, but I like to think of apologetics. If we're going to, say, use gardening terminology, for instance, I would like to think of God is the one who actually causes the growth to happen. This isn't, this isn't uh, germination by intellectual reason. Apologetics serves two purposes. It tills the ground. There's some really rocky, hard hearts. And good arguments and good reasons can help turn that up and maybe make it a little bit more receptive. And it also does a lot of weeding. Because if any of you have planted before, you know that... Uh, you have to kind of maintain in order for something to grow well. And I feel like looking at philosophy, theology, and some of those areas and really diving into understanding these topics helps us weed out some bad thinking. It keeps bad thoughts out of, out of our beliefs. So that's what we're, what, what we're doing. I'd like to look at another phrase, however, in this passage because it is just as applicable, in fact, more applicable, what we're talking about today, and that is that the defense we're giving, the apologetic that we're giving, is for the hope that is in us. Now, ultimately, that is our hope in heaven. But the question is, there's a funny thing about hope, I guess we could say. Here's the thing about it. Now, I don't know if anyone can tell what this is. In fact, if you can, I will give you a cookie after service because... I purposefully tried not to make it so obvious. But if this image is analogous to our hope in heaven, or really anything that we believe as Christians, or say that we believe, having a vague, general understanding of what it is that we believe, when someone, let's go back to 1 Peter 3.15, were to ask us, why do you believe that? If I myself only have a very vague general understanding of what I believe in. I'm not going to be able to defend it very well. I'm not going to be able to give good reasons for it. So one of the purposes for our time here this morning is to clear things up a little bit. I would love, if for no, nothing else, you to feel like you have gained clarity for yourself about what heaven will be like and how that's all going to work. Because if you have a clear picture in your mind of what it is that you are looking forward to as a Christian, you will be far better equipped to talk about it with people. So, this is time for something very different. I come from a training background. In fact, my current job is I, I train trainers to train people. It's, a, it's more complicated than that, but we'll just leave it there because I don't have time for that sermon. So, one of the things that I have just grown accustomed to and I really enjoy is getting people involved. Now, in this context, I understand that you all are not used to that. So we're going to take it slow, and I'm going to ask you to kind of, we're going to baby step our way to it. But these next few moments are going to be really awkward if you don't help me out here. So what I'd like you to do is for the next rest of the, any time we see the slide that corresponds here, I need you to pretend that you are seated in the largest airplane that has ever been built. Because you all have elbow room, so it's got to be bigger than anything that currently exists. And you are all seated in the exit row. So when I ask you a question, I'm going to need a verbal confirmation from you, right? Okay, so that's where we're going. I need you to participate here a little bit. But we're going to play a game, a game of sorts, called Heaven or Not. 
I don't know if this is a bit much. In our new building, there will be lights flickering in the Who Wants to Be a Millionaire music, but for now, this is what we're stuck with. So I'm going to give you a statement, and I want you all to tell me, right after I read it, whether that is heaven or not. Fair enough? Awesome. All right, cool. I expected there to be total crickets on that. So we're already, we're already ahead of schedule. So first statement. Heaven or not, people, especially babies and children, become angels when they die. Oh, I love you. Thank you. This is good. We're gonna, I'm going to try and start off with uh, some t-ball stuff, and we're going to work our way into some harder things. So I'm glad that this truly was a, a meatball question for you all. So this comes from, and, and by the way, many, many people believe that. Can I just, uh, if you don't know that, you should know that. It comes from a too quick of a reading of this teaching that is found in Matthew Mark and Luke, where Jesus says, For in the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. But in slowing down and really reading the passage, we come to see that what he's saying is, first of all, that they will be like angels. It's a simile. It's not an actuality. And they will be like angels only in this one respect, that they are neither married nor given in marriage. And that's as far as the analogy goes. So, again, I want us to be careful, but it sounds like we're, we're tracking. We're good there. Okay, cool. So let's do the next one. Heaven or not. The primary color in heaven is white. You see where we're going with this, right? We're doing a little bit of weeding before we dive into the really the, he- the heavy stuff. Okay, good. So, great. In fact, in my humble opinion, heaven will be every color except white, actually. Because if you look at Revelation chapter 21, and this is going to be a passage we'll go to later on, and you read about the New Jerusalem, which is the capital city in the new heaven and the new earth, there is a wall surrounding the New Jerusalem, and that wall has 12 foundational stones in it, representing the 12 tribes of Israel. And it names the stones that are used, the, the, the gems that are used in every one of those foundation stones. So I, I submit to you that what you're about to see is just the foundation stones in just the wall in just the city of Jerusalem in heaven. Here you go. Not really a lot of white, right? You remember that picture of the hummingbird that we just looked at a little bit ago? If God is capable of creating something like that and more, some of the, some of the things you see in the, the opening slide deck, I love pictures from the Hubble telescope. Some of the things that you see out in deep space, the combinations of gases and stardust, and then some of the creation that you see here, if God is capable of creating that, surely heaven will not be boring. It won't be eggshell satin, right? (laughs) Heaven or not, we will sing and play harps in heaven. Oh, okay, it's getting a little less sure now. All right, so first of all, we're going to look at that. But you're right, we will sing, totally. I think what we're going for here is this idea that we will exclusively sing and play harps. You know, you get into heaven, you enter the the pearly gates, you are issued your, your, you know, one-size-fits-all robe and harp. Here's your cloud. Have fun forever. Don't they look so happy? Not really. I don't think so. Again, I think we benefit greatly from slowing down, majorly slowing down, and really reading the passages where these kinds of things come into play. So we're going to do that right now. In Revelation chapter 14, John, who is experiencing something that is so unlike anything that he has words for, he's doing the very best that he can to describe it to his readers in terms that they will understand. And what he says is, a voice that I heard was like the sound, like, there's our word like again, the sound of harpists playing on their harps. And they sang a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures, 
and the elders. Now, it goes on to even say that only, only certain people will even sing this particular song. However, I just want us to, again, pay attention. The voice that said this was like the sound of harps playing harpists. Harps, yeah, harps playing harpists. You meant what I knew. <laughs> harpists playing harps. And what would that sound like? Well, it would sound incredible, first of all, and loud, and in its own way, beautiful, and probably a little terrifying. And all these things are what, are, what John is attempting to communicate here. Heaven or not? All right. Welcome to the big leagues. Heaven will be a return to the way things were in the Garden of Eden. Heaven or not? Ooh, we got Family Feud style right here. We are mixed. This is good. This is why we're doing this, right? We're weeding. So in order to answer this one, we need to do some philosophizing. It's not a real word, but it's long and it sounds smart. So, I need to share with you some philosophy. Before your eyes roll back in your head, I truly am excited about how philosophy at times can have a direct impact on understanding and shedding new light and understanding on lessons and ideas that the Bible teaches. And this is one time where philosophy can be very beneficial to us as we're really studying and looking hard at some passages. So, I need to share with you something called the law of identity, which states, each thing is the same with itself and different from another. Now, I know you're thinking, well, first of all, you're thinking, what? And second, you're thinking, duh, because that seems obvious. So, basically, here's what we're saying. For two things to be truly identical, the same thing. All of the traits and properties that they possess have to be identical, which means that if we can find even one thing that's different between these two things, they are not identical. Tracking with me? Okay. So therefore, let's take that idea and let's apply it to the Garden of Eden and the new heaven and the new earth. First of all, when we look at Eden and we read in Genesis some of the things that were true about Eden, I think that we can definitively say there was definitely pain in the Garden of Eden for two reasons. One, is pain in and of itself bad? You're going to need a verbal confirmation. Is pain bad in and of itself? No. No. In fact, if you look at people who have diseases, like leprosy or other diseases, that shut down their nervous system function and they cannot experience physical pain, it's disastrous. In fact, if you're a physical person in a physical world, physical pain is necessary because it tells you something is wrong. It's how we are able to get around in this physical world without completely destroying our bodies in the process. So pain on a philosophical level is not inherently bad, and we need to keep at least physical pain. And we need to keep that in mind. Adam and Eve are physical people in a physical place. And so when Adam stubbed his toe on a root in the Garden of Eden, it hurt. Secondly, when God curses Eve after they have fallen and sin has entered the picture, he says to her, I will greatly multiply or increase, depending on your translation, your pain. And with much pain, you will enter childbirth. Now, this is working backwards a little bit from that, but the language there is not the introduction of pain into human existence. It is the amplification of it meaning that there was something there to begin with, right? So pain definitely existed. Now, this next one, this is why you have my email address. Personally, and there are many, many, many who disagree with this. There are some who agree with this as well. I personally believe that death, animal death, may have existed prior to the fall as well. And I say it for 
two reasons as well. First of all, in the interaction in Genesis chapter 3, when Satan said, well, first of all, when God tells Adam and Eve, you shall not eat of the tree of knowledge of good and evil or else you will die. And then Satan comes to, to Adam and Eve and tempts them and says, what did God say? And, and Eve repeats and she adds to it. She says, you won't touch it or eat of it. But she gets the last part right or else you will surely die. And Satan says, no, you won't surely die. Well, now I think it's good of us to ask a question here. If God were to say to us, don't do this one thing, or else you will get Hopkins disease. And we have no idea what that is. I just, I don't even know that that's a thing. Does that really mean anything to me? I, and again, this is where I feel like it can, it can lend some clarity here. If God says, you will surely die, and Adam and Eve have some kind of analog in their current experience to look at and say, oh, oh, that. Now God's statement makes a lot more sense, and it has weight. Secondarily, I believe it also makes more sense of the conversation, because what did God truly mean when he said, you will surely die? He's talking about the most important kind of death, spiritual separation from God, which did occur the instant that Adam and Eve ate of the fruit. But Satan says, no, you won't surely die, because he's equivocating. He's, he's referring to physical death when God didn't mean physical death. He meant spiritual death. So the conversation is, like, no, you're not going to die, whatever, God's, God's pulling your chain. And they didn't physically die. And so you see how there's, there's something maybe more going on here in this interaction. Now, again, this is by far not set in stone, whatever. And so if, if you happen to disagree on this particular point, fair enough. Because we still have pain. And remember the law of identity. If even one thing is different, then we're not talking about the same thing anymore. And... In Revelation chapter 21, it specifically says that in the new heaven and new earth, there will be no more pain and no more death. So there you have it. Whatever is to come is not a return to the Garden of Eden. And I think that's important for us to understand. It will be better than the Garden of Eden. We shouldn't settle for what the Garden of Eden was like because it will be better than that. Secondly, it won't be a return to some kind of way that things are currently in the current heaven or even in heaven prior to the creation of mankind. How do we know that? Well, again, using the law of identity, we know from Revelation chapter 12 that there was war in heaven, rebellion of Satan and the angels who fell. Never mind the fact that sin and rebellion occurred at the very first time it ever occurred in the very presence of God in heaven which, as far as we can tell, was the perfect circumstances. And so, kind of have to ask the question, too, what better possible circumstances could God have put his initial creation of the angels in to keep them from falling? And I think the answer is none, because God is using that to teach us something about ourselves and, about, and the angels about themselves. But we also know, then, according to Second Peter, that... Upon the fall of Satan and the angels, hell was, was reserved for them. Hell didn't exist initially, but hell will exist eternally when the new heaven and the new earth are created. So again, we have a couple things here that are different. And even just from those couple things alone, we can say that whatever is to come will not be like anything that has up to this point existed. It'll be unique in history and in creation. One or two more, I can't remember. But we have another heaven or not for you. Heaven or not. While physical here on earth, we will become spirits in heaven just like God himself is. Heaven or not. Oh, I love this. This is where 1 Thessalonians has helped us tremendously, right? Because we've talked about this already. So, 
let's let's do some spiritual bodies 101, all right? Because spiritual bodies get a bad rap, and they create a lot of misconceptions, especially, unfortunately, because of the way that a lot of our modern translations in English are translated, where spiritual bodies are held up against physical bodies. The Greek words there, physical and spiritual, don't have to be translated that way, and I feel like it does us a disservice personally when they're translated physical bodies, because that gives the impression that spiritual bodies, whatever they are, are not physical. Well, the fact is that's wrong, and we know that that's wrong for several reasons. Let's look at 1 Corinthians chapter 15. I'm going to read this passage, and you can feel free to follow along. In chapter 15, verses 12 through 18, Paul is responding to a question that came from the Corinthian church about the resurrection. Because there was some doubting as to whether a resurrection was even going to occur at all, and there was some sarcasm, I think, that at least the way Paul writes it, he says, well, someone will say, well, then with what kind of bodies are we going to have, and how is that going to happen? And Paul is very careful to say, well, listen up, I'm going to tell you. He says here in verse 12, Now, if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is also in vain. Moreover, we are even found to be false witnesses of God, because we testified against God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if in fact the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins." Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we are of all men most to be pitied. But now Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who are asleep. Turn with me to Colossians chapter 1, verse 18. Paul teaches something that's somewhat parallel to this, where he teaches that He, Christ, is also the head of the body, the church, and he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. Now, this word firstborn in the Greek is a word prototakos, and it can be used to speak of first in chronological order. In fact, that rendition and translation of that word is why... Jehovah's Witnesses believe that Christ is the most powerful created being, but is a created being. That they read that passage to say, well, see, Christ was the first thing that God created in his creation. Therefore, he's the most important because it says he's the prototakos. The problem is, there's a very different way to translate that same word, and another meaning that it can have, and I think the meaning it has here, is first in order of rank or importance. Preeminence would be a good way to translate it. Saying that Christ is the first in order of rank or importance among the dead, among the resurrected, and according to what Paul teaches in 1 Corinthians 15, he is our our first fruits, our prototype for all who are asleep. In other words, what he's saying here is, as we've talked about in weeks past, if you want to know what your resurrected body will be like for all of eternity, look at Jesus' resurrected body. His body is the prototype, the first one of what all of our resurrected bodies will be like throughout eternity. So what, did, what do we know and what can we find out from the scriptures about what Jesus' resurrected body was like? I'll just say this, because that's a sermon in and of itself, It was very much physical. And we know this from most of the endings of the Gospels, with the exclusion of Mark, because it ends short. But look at Luke 24 as one one particular passage where you'll get a lot of this. The women fell down and they grabbed at Jesus' feet. He had feet that could be grabbed. He was held on to by Mary when she first saw him. 
with the Emmaus disciples. He walked with them and he sat down and he picked up bread and he broke it and then he vanished from their sight. But he was able to pick it up and break it. He invited his disciples to touch him, to feel him, to say, look, here I am, touch me. And later on in John's Gospel and in Luke, he meets them by the sea and he eats fish with them. So Jesus' resurrected body, whatever else it could do that our bodies currently can, can't, he could eat, he could walk, he could touch, he was physical, he could interact. It's important to know. It's not this idea that we're some disembodied spirits floating around for all of eternity on our cloud with our harp. We're physical. There is continuity between our bodies now and what they will be someday. But there's also discontinuity, and we'll get to that. So, again, more Spiritual Bodies 101. What about, and this is a good question, what about the time between when we get that resurrected body and right now, or whenever we die? It's a good question. And I think that if we look at the Scriptures carefully, the best answer that we can give is, don't know. Don't know for sure. Because I think there's a case to be made that Paul himself wasn't sure about this particular question. Go with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. And I'll read the first 10 verses. This is in the context of Paul, again, talking about resurrected bodies and what that whole thing is going to be like. Because there's a big... There's a big problem with the Corinthians really being able to grasp that because in their culture, at their time, the prevailing idea was very Greek about what the life after death would be like. And the Greek prevailing thought was that physical stuff is inherently evil. It's bad. That this body is a prison for my soul, my immaterial self, which is inherently good. And I've got this dichotomy of good and evil in my body. And when I finally die, I will be free from this evil, bad stuff. And my soul will be free and no longer hindered by my body. So if that's what you believed about what the life after death would be like, you can see how it would be very, very, very difficult to grasp the concept of what do you mean I'm going to have a body forever? Aren't bodies bad? Why would I want that? Why would I even want a body if, that, if that's the case? And so Paul is trying to combat this thinking and say, no, 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 that's a bad idea. That's not, that's not what God has in mind for us. So here he's talking about this very question, and he says, starting in verse 1 of chapter 5, For we know that if the earthly tent, and he's using, he's a tent maker, right, by trade, so he's using analogies that he's familiar with, which is our house, is torn down. We have a building from God, our future resurrected body, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For indeed, in this house we groan, longing to be clothed with our dwelling from heaven. Can I get an amen for that? <laughs> These bodies don't do so hot. And eventually, no one's does. And it's a... It's a hard process to go through your body wearing out over time. It's a hard process to deal with disease and chronic pain and things like that. It's not how our bodies were designed. And ultimately, Paul says, our new bodies, they won't wear out. They won't have those issues. Inasmuch as we, having put it on, having our new body put on, will not be found naked. We'll get to that in a sec. For indeed, while we are in this tent, this body, we groan, being burdened. Because we do not want to be unclothed, but clothed. So what is mortal, this current body, will be swallowed up by life. Now he who prepared us for this very purpose is God, who gave us the Spirit as a pledge, as a promise. Therefore, always being of good courage and knowing that while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. We are of good courage, I say, and prefer rather to be absent from the body and to be present at home with the Lord. Therefore, we also have as our ambition, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body, 
according to what he has done, whether good or bad. So a couple things to note here. Paul is saying, he mentions this idea of not wanting to be found naked or unclothed. And based on the context, that can't mean this mortal body, pre-resurrection, because he's already established that when he refers to this body, he's talking about being clothed. When he refers to the resurrected body, he talks about something that's even better. Uh, in, In essence, putting on a coat over your current clothing. And he says that, I wish that I could just move from that to, to, to this, that I could just, that Christ would come, that I wouldn't have to experience physical death, and that like putting on a coat over my current clothing, I could just put on my resurrected body immediately over this body, and I would not have to undergo that transition. Why? Because the thought of being without a body is, well, completely foreign. You or I have never experienced that, and it's because it's completely foreign, it's scary. But Paul says, even so, if being out of this body for a time means that I will be present with the Lord, I would rather that. Even though it's scary, even though I might not know what that means. So all we can say from this passage is that in Paul's mind, there was some he wasn't sure about. That an intermediate state is possible, because Paul seems to suggest that here. And we've talked about this, that an intermediate state is possible. And it's also possible that, as you've heard preached uh, other times, that a temporary body may be supplied during that time. But we can say, at least in Paul's mind, he wasn't sure of that, and that we may have a period of time in between where we don't have physical bodies. Now, if the concept of a mind without a body just doesn't even make sense to you, I guess I would just ask you this question. What is it that you think God is exactly, if not a mind without a body? I believe that is what essentially God is when we talk about God. So, regardless, based on this passage, Paul was confident in three things. He was confident that we will enjoy, ultimately, imperishable bodies. That even if we have some intermediate state, we won't be there forever. Secondly, As soon as we die, we are in God's presence. He knew that. Because we have the Spirit of God, and God always keeps his promises. He gave us the Spirit of God as a pledge for that promise. So, in the interest of precision here, I want us to understand this very important thing. Based on what Paul just just told us about in 2 Corinthians, we do not, as Christians, hope in life after death. Why? Because if we have some kind of intermediate period, assuming that Christ doesn't come, then the vast majority of Christians hope in the life after life after death. That is the life that we will ultimately enjoy, is the life after the life after death, which is weird to think about, I know. But So why does knowing this stuff matter? We have done so much weeding. We have done so much technical digging and diving in and really nitpicking some things and taking time to read them slow. And I appreciate you all sticking with me. Thank you. Thank you for participating. Why does knowing this stuff matter? Because I firmly and truly believe with all of my being that heaven and what is to come for us is the only thing that makes this life make any sense. All the evil, all the suffering, all the pain, all the everything that we go through... Heaven is the only thing that can dwarf all of it into insignificance. And if we don't understand heaven, we're not going to get much else right. So therefore, when it comes to heaven, we have to get it right. We have to. So, what are we going to do? We've talked about our bodies. We've talked about some things that heaven won't be. What are we going to do for all of eternity? Well, 1 Corinthians 3, I think, has a major role to play in answering that question. In it, Paul says that everyone, Christian, who builds on the foundation, your foundation is Jesus Christ, and there is no other foundation that a person can build on. But what you build on that foundation as a Christian is either going to last or not. And it's either going to merit reward or not. Now, Paul is careful to say at the end of that passage, he himself 
the person whose whole Christian life is burned up and not of any eternal lasting value will be saved, but is through fire. They will have themselves to show for it, and that's it. Other people will be rewarded. And Jesus, I believe, teaches something very similar in Luke and Matthew, where he teaches the parable of the talents. Because those, all three people, just for the record, were servants of the master. And all three remained servants of the master, even after they did well or didn't do well. They were just either rewarded or punished as a result. And it was what they did while the master was away that determined whether they would be rewarded or punished. The slave who was wicked and lazy was cast out and punished, but he wasn't, I believe, thrown into hell. I think that that's a bad translation of that passage, and there's some reasons that we can talk about later for why I think that's true. But suffice it to say that we are talking about, I believe, all Christians here, and their lives either merit reward or they don't. The point of this is to say, what are we going to do for all of eternity? Well... I believe that we're going to govern and rule and reign alongside Christ. In the Luke passage, and I don't want to press this analogy too far, but in the Luke passage, the servants who were faithful with the talents were put in charge of ten and five cities, respectively. And just to remind us of what's, what's coming is that the new heaven and the new earth, Jerusalem is the capital city. Not everyone lives there. Presumably there are other cities in the new heaven and the new earth, and so... What are we going to do? Well, those who have been rewarded will be rewarded with responsibility that lasts for all of eternity. We're going to be busy. We're going to be helping administrate the kingdom of, of heaven. So, one more thing. Heaven, when we think of heaven, we have this picture of some place other than here. Some other dimension, some galaxy somewhere in space, wherever. But it's important to remember that heaven is a quality of life. It is not a place. Why? If you look at Revelation chapter 21, the first three verses say that the new Jerusalem comes out of the clouds and rests upon the new earth where God comes and lives on the new earth with us forever. So where are we going to live for all of eternity? The new earth. So we're going to have physical bodies. We're going to be in administration and governing and and living on a new earth that will never wear out, that matches our new bodies that will never wear out. There's a lot that feels like it's almost in common with what we're currently experiencing, except not all the bad stuff, right? So, I know that's a lot to take in. Mine's blowing everywhere, right? So, that sounds great. Heaven sounds great. This is a really good question, and honestly, this is a question that people have asked is, so if heaven is that great and awesome, why didn't we just start there? Right? I mean, it makes sense. Why wouldn't God just create things amazing to begin with, and we wouldn't have to go through all of this? Well, the answer is, first of all, he did, if you recall, the conditions in which Satan and the angels rebelled and fell. So God proved that I can't just immediately create it good because even without any outside influences, the choice to rebel is one that got taken. And secondly, to that question, I would ask this question, how important is free will to God? Not to you or me, because I might look at that and say, well, honestly, I'd make them robots, it's easier than this. But the question is, but what does God think about that? So I would submit to you this thought. What if... Hypothetically, what if God's desire for us as Christians was that we would walk with him eternally, forever, in complete, true freedom? Hypothetically, theoretically, we could sin, but we will never actually choose to. He doesn't make us robots. He doesn't bind our free will. We're not free to only choose good, whatever that even means that we really are truly free, but we will never, ever sin. What would that require in order to make a reality? I can think of three things. 
The first thing it would require, it would require a world where we experientially learn how terrible sin is. Where we live in a world where awful things happen directly because of people's choices to rebel and to go their own way. Despite what God says, it's terrible. But it teaches us an important lesson. This whole world teaches us, or is intended to teach us, sin is stupid. It is nothing except self-destructive and pointless. And only when you and I have lived through it a whole lifetime of the misery and the hurt and the heartache that sin causes, will we be able to agree with God, not because he says so and we take his word before it, but because we know in our own beings that sin is stupid. It's the reason we don't give pens to babies. I have a four-month-old. I would never dream of giving him a pen or a fork or anything like that. Why? Because he'll poke his eye out. He will. He'll poke his eye out because he doesn't know that jamming something like that into your eye is stupid. Now, you could give me the same pen or the same fork, and could I, theoretically, use it to poke my eye out? Yes. But will I? No. Why? Because it's stupid. Same reason I won't drink bleach or anything else, right? Doing self-destructive things are dumb. But it takes our own experience of really being able to come to hate sin the way that God does, that we will finally understand that sin is stupid. And even given the choice, I will never, ever, ever, ever choose it. It would require something else. That in that world, God allows the natural consequences of human actions to play out. Why? It does three things. It demonstrates our own depravity and sinfulness to us. No one argues with their own data. And if you and I come to realize, yeah, we're messed up. People are broken. There's something wrong with us. Allowing the consequences of our sinful actions to play out demonstrates that to us. It also honors us as God's creation. If every time someone went to stab someone, the knife turned to rubber, or shoot someone, the bullet turned to a bubble, our moral choices would mean exactly nothing. Our actions have to have consequences to actually matter. And God loves us too much, and he honors us too much to just void all the consequences of our actions and dwarf our choices into meaninglessness, because that's not what he wants our choices to mean in eternity. He wants them to matter. So we have to learn that they matter here. And it vindicates God's goodness. This, by the way, is a key theme of the Bible. So... Quickly, let me just share with you, if you, this is one way to interpret the Bible's theme, but if you go back and you look at, God creates people, right? And he says, be righteous, walk with me. And they fail. Now, lest it be said of God that, but God, you didn't tell us what we ought to do to walk righteously with you. God says, fine, here's the law. I will tell you how to walk righteously. And we fail. And lest God be accused of not giving us enough experiential knowledge and showing us how to apply the law, God says, fine. I'll send my son who will live the law perfectly and show you how to live righteously. Now live righteously. And we fail. And before he inaugurates this new kingdom, there will be a 1,000-year millennial kingdom where, lest it be said of God, yeah, but the world and the flesh and the devil and all the outside influences that make it too hard, even though I know what you did and you showed me, God says, fine, I'll take all that away. I will come down and Jesus will rule and reign over you for 1,000 years. And according to the Bible, we will fail. So that at the end of eternity, no one can look at God and say, you didn't, you couldn't, you should have. God will say, what more could I have possibly done to show you that the problem is not with me, it's with you? You need me. And the answer is nothing. God will be vindicated in the end. The last thing it would require 
is an eternal reminder of just how bad rebellion and sin actually is. Because God understands human psychology. Ten million years from now, two billion years from now, we may find ourselves thinking, if we're truly free, was, was rebellion and sin that bad? And we will have forever an eternal reminder in hell and all those who are there that all we have to do is look and say, yeah, yeah, it was that bad. God has accounted for everything in order to create a reality where we freely choose to follow him for all of eternity. And he's assured every step of the way that that can happen. So the hope of heaven, I just want you to know, being present with our Lord is going to be incredible. And the way in which God has prepared it and taught us from scriptures is going to, I just think it's fantastic. But I also want you to be challenged. There's a lot at stake and there is still much to do. So therefore, remember that this life is not a dress rehearsal. It matters deeply. So please don't settle. Please don't be content. Please don't say that you've grown enough. Please don't say that there's, you're happy with where you are spiritually because right now counts forever. And this life will have a lasting impact on the life to come. I can't say it better, so I will leave you with this quote from C.S. Lewis from The Weight of Glory, where he says this, It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in the slum because he can't imagine what is meant by an offer of light, uh, a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. Don't be so easily pleased. The life to come is worth every ounce of effort that you put into your spiritual life here. And heaven is the only thing that will dwarf this life into insignificance. So stick with it. It's worth it. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the opportunity to share these things this morning. I thank you for just the hope of heaven and just the wonderful thing that it is to look forward to. I thank you for putting in your word reminders and things that we can latch on to that will help us uh, have hope and be encouraged and look forward to the life to come. I thank you that you have given us an answer for why this life is what it is. But God, you love this so much that you didn't want this life as it is to be the only thing that we experience. This life is a means to an end. And God, you want us to walk with you eternally with freedom and yet never sin. And God, this is how we do it. So I pray that you would use this to encourage us, that you would challenge us, that you would refresh in us a desire, a motivation to live well, to remember that our actions and what we choose right now has eternal consequences and implications. And God, would you encourage us today to take this and, and apply it to our own lives and to share it with others. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Thank you for hanging in there.